So uh, I gotta say, I am super excited to be here today. I'm thrilled to be able to stand in the same pulpit that Brian Anderson normally uh, preaches from. Can I just tell y'all, um, I just absolutely love this man, love your pastor. I know that you know how great of a man of God that you have uh, as your pastor, as your shepherd. Um, he and I were talking actually a couple weeks ago that this is 20 years that he and I have been best friends. We met as freshmen in high school uh, and at Warner Robins High School. And just at first, just to be honest, we really didn't even like each other. Uh, just kind of different personalities and stuff like that. But God did a great work. Actually, it was a God-ordained way that he and I came to know each other. So he can tell you all about that later. Um, but very, very thankful for this church, for the things that I hear that God is doing in this church, uh, and just what I know that God is doing in your pastor's life. As Joby said earlier, love him, love Will. Uh, the staff you got here is fantastic. And so it is an honor and a privilege for me uh, to be able to share the Word of God with you today. Uh, we are going to be in James chapter 4. So if you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and head there. And uh, we're going to talk today really what it means to uh, submit to God and resist the devil and how that looks on a daily life um, within the, uh, the church as a whole as well as our lives individually. But before we dive in, will you just join me in prayer? Father, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, we do thank you for your word as we just, uh, just sung about. God, I pray that you would speak Father, I pray that we would open our minds and open our hearts to the truth of your word. Father, I pray that we would not approach your word in a nonchalant way, but God, we would approach it, Lord, with reverence, with awe. Lord, that you would open our eyes, that we may behold wonderful things from your word. Lord, as Psalm 119, 18 says, and so, Father, I pray, Lord, that you would speak, to, speak now. May I die, may you live. May, you, may I decrease and you increase. And Father, I pray, Lord, that your word would go forth, that Jesus would be celebrated, and Lord, that we'd be changed. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. <clears throat> All right. So question right to dive off. How many of you know you have an enemy? His name is Satan, and he hates your stinking guts. Okay? He wants nothing more than to steal, kill, and destroy you. His name is the devil, and he wants to rip from you everything that he can to take joy out of your life, to say, take any pursuit from Jesus out of your life. He wants to ruin you as an individual, and he wants to ruin this church as a whole. He hates this church, hates what God has planned for this church. So Satan wants to destroy you and this church and so in James, James is going to address some situations that's going on in the church of Jerusalem that he sees Satan is doing to try to cause division. You see, James was actually the half-brother of Jesus, and as the half-brother of Jesus, he didn't even really follow Jesus as Lord or anything like that until Jesus resurrected from the dead. And at that point, James, like little brother of Jesus, looks at his older brother and says, okay, you rose from the dead, you really are God. All the stories are true. I believe it now. And he goes on to be a follower of Christ. And then he later becomes the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem, if you haven't ever read your Bible, it's like a pretty legit place. Like it's, it's the place where a lot of things are going on for the people of God. And, and James is the pastor there. And just like every church that's ever existed, Satan wants to destroy that church. And so James is seeing how Satan is working amongst this church in Jerusalem. And for them, it was a lot of problems of, of quarreling and disunity. Now, 
James tells us how to battle sin on a daily basis as individuals and as a church as the whole, and we're going to see that today. But what we're going to see is that James unpacks worldly thinking and how that looks versus godly thinking or biblical thinking that comes from submission and wonder and submission to God and wisdom. Now I want to go ahead and give you kind of a roadmap of where we're going to go today um, because we're going to see James kind of outline some things for us. And so if you're taking notes, which I hope you are, what we're going to see is James first shows us what our problem is. And after he shows us what our problem is, he shows us God's solution to our problem or God's response to our problem. And then he goes on to, from that, what our response should be in two ways. Number one, how, what, or what we should do, and then what we should not do. So, in the context of James, the problem that we see was that they were quarreling and there was disunity. Now, that was their church problem there in Jerusalem. Now, that might be this church's problem. I don't know what this church's problems are, and I don't know what your individual problems are. For you, it might not be disunity, it might not be quarreling, it might be an addiction, it could be drugs or pornography or entertainment or or alcohol or something like that. It could be you you deal desperately in your lives and in turmoil with anger or, or you deal with greed or envy or pride or lust or gossip or something like that. But for this church in Jerusalem, their issue was disunity and quarreling. Now, when I thought about that, I couldn't help but think about a book that my children have in their playroom. And it's this book right here. It's it's called The Butter Battle Book. Now, let me ask you, how many of you ever read from the great theologian, Dr. Seuss? Okay. Dr. Seuss, brilliant guy, brilliant guy. And I I took this from their playroom. They don't know that, but hopefully they'll forgive me. Um, But I want to read to you just a few of the opening pages of this book, The Butter Battle Book. And it says this. On the last day of summer... Ten hours before fall, my grandfather took me out to the wall. For a while he stood silent, then then finally he said, with a very sad shake of his very old head, As you know, on this side of the wall, we are yooks, but on the far side of the wall live the zooks. Then my grandfather said, It's high time you knew of the terrible, horrible thing that the zooks do. In every zook house, And every zook town, every zook eats his bread with the butter side down. But we yooks, as you know, when we breakfast or sup, spread our bread, Grandpa said, with the butter side up. That's the right honest way, Grandpa gritted his teeth. So you can't trust a zook who spreads the bread underneath. Every zook must be watched. He has kinks in his soul. That's why as a youth, I made watching my goal, watching zooks, for the watching border patrol. And if I go on to read to you the rest of this story, what you will find out is that the yooks and the zooks go to all-out war over how they butter their bread. (laughs) How silly is that? But I can't help but wonder, sometimes God looks at his church on earth and he sees the church quarreling and have disunity and fight over these things and he's thinking, it's like buttering your bread. Instead of being unified around the mission that God has given us to make every tribe, tongue, nation, and people group hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, we want to fight and quarrel over over style, over music, over color of the carpet, or whatever, and it has nothing to do with what Jesus has called us to do. 
Do you understand that we live in a world where Coca-Cola is a better evangelist than, Jesus, than Christians are? More people around the world have heard of Coca-Cola than they have of Jesus Christ. Because Satan is doing whatever he can to distract us from the mission that we are called to as the people of God. It's amazing and sad how Satan so easily can damage the church in order to keep us from doing what he wants us to do. And so today, I want to look at the problem. What the problem is, and James is going to show us here in James chapter 4, we're going to begin with verses 1 through 3, and he shows us the problem within us. And he says this, what causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now, what James does is he starts off by asking the question. He asks the question, what's the problem? What's causing quarrels, causing fights among you? And then he spends the rest of those couple verses to answer the question. And he gives the answer. He says, what the problem is is that your passions are at war within you. So we got a passion issue we got a passion problem. Again, some people are more passionate about style of worship or, or uh, uh, these, these different things that, that churches want to embrace that are inward focused instead of being passionate what we're called to be passionate about, which is people meeting Jesus. And so there's a passion problem going on. And he says, your passions are at war within you, and that's, that's the problem. And he goes on to say, that you have envious desire that ultimately leads to hate, and he equates that with murder. And that kind of goes back to what we see Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount, how if you have anger in your heart towards a brother, it's the same thing as murder. In fact, much of James is really just kind of an a, a expository thing on the uh, Sermon on the Mount. A lot of similarities between those two. But it says you do not have because you do not ask because you ask wrongly. You ask wrongly. And so you ask wrongly out of the wrong passions. Again, this is a passion issue. Now, passion itself is not bad when it's directed to God. In fact, we're called to be passionate. One of the things that breaks my heart is that so many times when you see a person come to Jesus, it's like they get involved in the church and all of a sudden just passion dies. It's like, yep, I used to be passionate for this and this. I was passionate for Georgia football or Brian's your pastor, Alabama football, you know, whatever. You're passionate for all these things. And then I met Jesus and I got boring and dead inside. That is tragic. So passion itself is not bad. Let me just explain this a little bit better, hopefully. And the way that we have passion for Jesus, it's kind of like this. If I came to my wife um, 10 years ago and asked her to marry me, all right? In fact, my wife and I are actually about to celebrate our 10-year anniversary this Thursday, okay? So a little over 10 years ago, I asked my wife to marry me. And if I went up to her and I said this, Shanna, I've been passionate for a lot of women in my life. I mean, a lot of women. I've been, I've been just, had so much affection for them, so much love for them. I mean, I've just been stirred with emotion when I've seen these past women. But all that passion, it's behind me now because I'm committed to you. I'm going to be committed to you. Passion, done. But commitment, that's for you. How do you think she's going to respond? Not real well, right? She's going to think, uh-uh. Yes, I want your commitment, but I also want your passion. 
And so what Jesus is calling us here is to live for him with affection and love and awe and, and reverence and all that we are with passion. So the issues for this church in Jerusalem was that their passions were not the same passions of what God wanted them to have. And so it was a passion issue. And he goes on to say that the result of this is really just sinful depravity, which James would communicate as spiritual adultery and friendship with the world. In fact, that's what he continues to talk about our problem. Look what he says in verses four and five. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you not suppose it is of no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Now he starts off saying, you adulterous people. This is like super strong language here, okay? And he's not talking about the action of actual adultery and stuff like that, though I'm sure their church dealt with that just like every church has ever dealt with that. But what he's talking about is an unfaithfulness to God. It's, it's the church going away from Jesus as their bridegroom and turning to other things which are idols. He says it's friendship with the world, which is the same as being an enemy with God. It's, it's turning to idols. And so he reminds us, look, God yearns for you. God loves you. He wants to be with you. He wants to be intimate with you. He wants you to be his faithful bride. And so he talks about the spirits indwelling, and he says he yearns jealously. Like a husband that wants his wife to, to have all eyes for him, God yearns jealously for us. Now, here's the deal. So many times when we think about this being a, a, a friend of the world, we in the church can like associate that and say, okay, well, I've got to do everything Christian. Can't do anything a part of the world, can't really be, embrace the world or anything like that. And I'm not talking about embracing the world or anything like that, but I want to give a little flag here, okay? All right, because I see this all the time in church, in my church, in Warner Robins and all this kind of stuff. And we hear verses like this, James addresses about being a friend of the world, and we want to disassociate with the world as, as much as possible. You understand that Jesus was not a friend of the world, but he was a friend of sinners, and there's a difference. The Bible all, all, all the time talks about how Jesus was a friend of sinners. He saw the world around him as a missionary. So Jesus was not a friend of the world, but he was a friend of sinners, and there's a difference. You understand that we actually live in a culture today where you can grow up in your Christian home and go to your Christian churches and go to a Christian school and eat at, at Christian Chick-fil-A restaurants, you can go to uh, a Christian job, you can do all these Christian things. You can even today go to a Christian bookstore and get Christian mints, they're called testaments, all right? Like, you can do all of these different Christian things today. You can do that for 70 years of your life, do all of these Christian things, and still do not do the one thing that Jesus told you to do, which is make a disciple. We live in that world. You can do all of those things and not do the one thing Jesus told you to do. And so James is urging, don't be a friend of the world. Don't be like the world. But he's not saying, don't be a missionary to it. Embrace it. Be a friend of sinners like Jesus. I love what y'all's church uh, said. I, I was reading the bulletin earlier. And it says, penetrate the culture. I love that. That's what we're called to as followers of Christ to be. Regardless of our unfaithfulness, though, 
Even though James says, look, you do often become a friend of the world. You do often go your own way. You do often become an idolater and an adulterous bride. There's still really good news, and that is the gospel. The gospel is the good news because even though you are unfaithful, he is faithful. Even though you have turned away, he will never turn away. And so our hope is the gospel, and that is what James reminds us of next, that he will always take us back. In fact, look what God's response to us is. God's response to us, verse 6, James says, but he gives more grace. He gives more grace, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He gives more grace. This is the good news of the gospel, that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. No matter how much you've failed, how much you've fallen, how much you've turned away, you have never been a place where you can outrun the grace of God. That's how good it is. He will pursue you with his grace, and he loves you with his grace, and he wants you to just to, to dwell in his grace and all that he is, regardless of our spiritual adultery. And so what this should do for us is lead us to humility. When you think about the grace of God, how does it make you feel? When you think about the grace of God, how does it make you respond? Do you respond in pride or in humility? Because see, God's, God opposes the proud. That's what James is saying. God opposes the proud. He hates pride, yet delights in humility. And when there's humility, there is always more grace to come. So are you prideful or humble? You see, when you think about the cross of Jesus Christ, how does it make you feel about yourself? How does it make you think about yourself? You see, for a lot of people, it actually makes us prideful because we think to ourselves, man, I must have really been worth something. And then for other people, you look at the cross and say, man, I'm just amazed by the love and passion of God to die for me. It's kind of like this, as one friend of mine uh, shared one time, it's, it's really the, the difference between dog theology versus cat theology. I'll explain. All right, you need a show of hands here. But how many of you would be honest and say that you like dogs more than cats? All right, that's, that's most people, all right? And that's, that's pretty common, all right? How many of you, now be honest, how many of you are weird, all right, and, and you, would, you would be honest enough to say, I prefer cats over dogs? Okay, wow, a few weirdos here at Printer Road. That's okay, all right? All right, that's okay. We love you. We're glad that you're here, all right? But here's the difference between cat and dog theology. A dog says to his master, you love me, you pet me, you feed me, you must be God. And a cat says, you love me, you pet me, you feed me, I must be God. <laughs> and that's the difference, right? And so many people, when they see the cross of Christ, they think to themselves, man, Jesus died for me. What was it in me? I must have been worth so much that I've even heard, heard this said before that, you know, Jesus loved me so much. Even if I was the only person on the earth, Jesus would have spread his arms out and died for me. I'm, he just loves me. What was worthy in me? And can I just be honest enough to bust your bubble today to say nothing in you was worth dying for? Nothing in me was worth dying for, for Jesus. It's nothing in me that he saw. It's always what was in him. It's all about what's in him, his goodness, his greatness, his power, his love. That is the good news of the gospel, and that is what ought to draw us to humility. 
And so James is reminding the church here, look, you ought to respond in humility because of this. And so he then leads us, because of this humility, it ought to always result in submission. And that's where he leads us next. He shows us what our response should be, what we should do. He says it in verse 7 through 10. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep, and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. And so the first thing that James is saying to these guys is, look, you, out of this humility, out of your understanding of the gospel, the good news, you are submit to God. It's like a, a dog showing his belly up to his master or yielding to someone in traffic, letting God first. But then he says what must accompany that is resisting the devil. And the promise of that is that he will flee when you have submitted to God and resist the devil. Now, what I love about this is that James says something that is so similar to what Peter says. I want to read to you what Peter says. It's so similar to all this. In 1 Peter 5, beginning of verse 6, Peter writes, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all, here it is, grace. The God of all grace, who has called you into his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. I love what Peter says here, reminding us so much similar to the things that James says, but submitting to God, resisting the devil, he will flee from you. I love what Johnny Hunt says about this, though. You know why so many people don't ever experience the mighty hand of God, why you don't ever experience the power of God in your life, the mighty hand of God, it's because you don't humble yourself enough to get under it. And that's what Peter's telling us. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Submit to him. Resist the devil. Because the truth is, Satan is crafty. He prowls. He's sneaky. And so because of that, you've got to be watchful. You've got to be watchful. Yes, he'll bring a roar, but the reality is if you know the gospel, if you trusted in Jesus and have an intimate relationship with Jesus, there is more power in you than there is power in him. Satan is sneaky, he's crafty, he's got a loud roar, but you are more powerful than him. You understand that if you're a follower of Jesus, you are the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. You're more than a conqueror. You're a co-heir of Christ. The same Holy Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead is the same Holy Spirit that lives within you. That's power. That's power. So Satan prowls, prowls, yes, but you have power of God in you. And so James is reminding you, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. What's that about? What does it mean to draw near to God? It's worship. It's worship. And so James is saying, look, in submission to God and resisting the devil, the heart behind all of this is worship. You've got to worship. This is where we move to God and God moves to us. 
And so when we fight our sin struggles, or we, we see problems within the church, or we see problems within ourselves of just dealing with this sin and that sin and this sin and that sin, whatever, what we've got to do is go to God and worship and just cry out to him, Lord, help me understand that you are more satisfying than that thing. Help me to believe with my heart and my mind that you really are more beautiful, more treasurable than anything that this world can ever offer. It is pulling your heart to a place of worship and awe of the greatness and magnitude of all that he is, where he is your treasure and he is your joy. It's a reminder of verses like Psalm 1611, such a great truth that says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Do you know that? That in his presence is fullness of joy. Isn't that what we're all wanting? Fullness of joy? At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Isn't that what we desire? Pleasure? And that's what he's inviting us to. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. But then he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Now, He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. This is where James gives us the outward action and an inward action. The outward action is the cleansing of your hands. It's something you tangibly do. And so what's he talking about here? He's talking about doing things in your life that are practical about an outward action towards your sin struggle. If you keep falling for the same old sins, it's time you put some changes and boundaries in your life because this is resisting Satan. Like if you're a person that struggles with pornography, it's high time that you actually got an accountability partner and put some filters on your computer. That's an outward action. If you're a person that finds that you get really angry when you don't ever sleep, pop a melatonin and go to bed. All right, it's an outward action. Put some outward actions in your life and parameters that will help you resist the enemy. But then he says to uh, purify your hearts, you, you sinner, or purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now, this goes back to what I love that John Owen always said about making war on your sin. John Owen said this, be at this always whilst you live. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. It's taking an outward action and an inward action and putting them together to address your sin, resisting the devil. And so James goes on to talk about this inward action as purifying your hearts. Now, how do you do that? What is purifying your hearts? What is that ultimately about? It's about having a heart change where Jesus changes you from the inside out. Now, the problem with sin is the same for all of us. Like you might deal with a different sin than I deal with and I might deal with a different sin than he deals with or she deals with or whatever. We all deal with different sins, but we all deal with sin. And there's one reason that we all have in common while we all deal with sin. It's because we love it. We love it. And so James even says, look, you're double-minded because you love it. And so it's coming to a place where you draw near to God. He draws near to you and you say, God, open my eyes and my heart and all that I am, I'll be changed because of worship where there is a purifying of the heart that happens in me where I can come to the place that you want me to be where I will love the Lord my God with all my heart, my soul, my mind, my strength, all that I am. That my love for this sin and this sin will completely be deplenished because of my love for him is greater. That's what we're called to. But he does know exactly what we're dealing with, and that's why he says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. You're double-minded. 
Every one of us are this way. We're like ping pong balls that go back and forth between our love for Jesus and the things of this world. Like, I see that in my own heart. It's like, I'll go after this sin struggle and then go back to Jesus. I'll go back over here to this thing and come back to Jesus. And we're like ping pong balls behind. We're double-minded. We have a divided loyalty all the time. But I'm so encouraged because we're not alone in this. The Apostle Paul even dealt with this. In fact, I love what he says in Romans chapter 7. This sin struggle, this war struggle within ourselves. Look what he says. Romans 7, beginning in verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions. Ever been there? For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do not do what I want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin struggle, sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. By the way, did you hear that? What, what good dwells in you? Nothing. Nothing. That's what he says, verse 18. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. You can't even do it if you tried in your own strength. Verse 19. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want to do is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. And he goes on down to verse 24, and this is how he feels about himself, and this is how you probably felt about yourself a time or two, but he says this, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He asks a question, and then he gives the answer. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The gospel's the answer. The gospel's the hope. It's the only thing that we can bank on. I don't know about you, but I feel like I just like live in this verse. I do not do the things I want to do and the things I don't want to do. I keep on doing. Wretched man that I am. God, who will deliver me from me? Answer, Jesus will. Jesus will. And that's the good news of the gospel. So James says, because of that, look, be wretched and mourn and weep. What he's asking here is, are you broken over your sin? Turn your laughter into and to joy, your laughter into mourning and your joy to gloom, he says. This is an attitude check about sin. Being broken over sin. Humble yourselves and he will exalt you. And once he takes you there of the problem and what we should do as a response to the gospel, he then reminds me, us of what we should not do. And that's where he picks up verse 11. Our response, what we should not do. Do not speak evil against another bro- one another, brothers, The one who speaks evil against a brother and judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? So James is asking the question, who are you to speak evil against another person? Against their struggle when you got one too. We are all sinners, we're all dirty, rotten, stinking sinners to the core of our being, and we will all one day stand before the true judge who is able to save and destroy. And so who are we to judge? And so James even reminds us of this uh, in the chapter 4, chapter 3, about the tongue and how we use our tongue. So we got to be careful how we speak. I think about what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount about taking the speck out of your brother's eye when you get a log in your own eye. Now understand, according to Scripture, we are to keep one another accountable. 
or to, or to correct, reproof, rebuke, encourage, edify, all of these things. But we do that with an attitude of humility, understanding that under the gospel, we're all in the same boat and we're to help each other. It does not come from an attitude of pride of, I'm better than you. It comes with, hey, we're in this together and we both desperately need Jesus. We need Jesus. And so apart from the blood of Jesus, we'd all be destroyed. Yet through him, we can be saved, not by our actions, but by his. And that's the good news of the gospel. Again, he gives more grace. He gives more grace. So many times in our culture, we, we think it's about what I do and what I don't do. And all that ever is, is religion. Religion is this mindset, I got to do this and do this and do this and do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't drink. Don't chew. Don't date girls that do. You know, all these little things that we try to do in our lives or whatever. It's all these do's and don'ts. And at the end of the day, that will only lead us to either despair, depression, or pride. Because we'll think to ourselves, you know, I'm doing pretty good right now. Based on my morality and all these things, I'm doing well and I get prideful. Or we say, you know what, I'm not doing good. I keep failing. I keep messing up. And all of a sudden, I lead to despair. But when the gospel is what you are under, you understand that when you do walk in victory and when things are going well, you know what that is? It's grace. It's grace. And when you fall and when you fail and when you stumble, you know what you can bank on? Grace. Grace. So the difference between religion and gospel is that the religion is about what I do. The gospel is about what Jesus did. So Jesus is the focus. And so we've got to pursue that, to do battle. James is just ushering this church, and he's ushering us today. Do battle against your sin. Do not fight against each other or disagree with each other or be against each other over the way you butter your bread. Do battle against your own sin and help your brother out. Do battle against his sin. Make war on sin every single day. I'm reminded of what Paul said about this in 1 Corinthians 15, 31. He said, I die every day. I mean that, brothers, just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus. Now, did Paul, like, literally die and come out of life every day? No, that's not what he's talking about. He died every day in what he's saying in Romans 12, where he offered his body as a living sacrifice to God every day. It's saying, God, may you increase and may I decrease. May you live and may I die. Jesus, may you prevail over my flesh prevailing. It's doing battle. It's submitting to God, resisting the devil. It's humbling yourself before God, submitting to him, resisting the devil, drawing near to God, cleansing your hands and purifying your hearts, making war every day in order that Jesus would be your treasure, pleasure, hope, passion, and joy. That's what James is calling us to. And that's what we've got to be called to as a church. And so as the band comes back up, that's the invitation. To humble yourself, to submit to God, to resist the devil that he would flee from you, to cleanse your hands, to purify your hearts, and that you would be changed by grace. Because it gives more grace. He gives more grace. And so... Brian's going to be in the back. We might have some pastors up here. But here's the invitation today. Maybe you're here today, and you're checking church out and all this kind of stuff, and we're so glad that you're here. But maybe you've never come to a place where you've truly humbled yourself to God. You've never truly submitted to him for who that he is and believed in the good news of the gospel. 
Maybe your whole life has tried to walk that religious life of do's and don'ts, and it's never led you anywhere but pride or despair. Today's the day where you can come and believe in the good news of the gospel, that God so loved you that he sent Jesus Christ to come live the life you could not live and die the death you should have died, where on a cross he took your sin and he took your shame and he took the wrath of God upon himself. He died, was buried, and three days later he rose from the dead conquering sin and death that anybody who puts their faith and trust in him would have new life, would be a child of God filled with the Holy Spirit to go then carry that good news to every tribe, tongue, nation, and people group around the world. And if you believe in that, and you want to come to him and say, God, I submit to you. I want to give my life to you. I want to be with you. Then get your passions right. And be passionate about the thing that you're created for. The reason why you have air in your lungs and blood in your veins and you're drawing a breath right now is one reason for him. For him. Let's respond however God might leading be leading you. Maybe you're here today and you've been a follower of Christ for a long time, but you realize, you know what? I still got some major sin struggles and some things that I just really have not let go and submitted to God in. I've not really resisted the devil in this. I've not put some outward actions in my life that I know I need to or inward actions that I know I need to. And today's the day I'm gonna lay it down before him. I'm gonna resist the devil today. Let that be your prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for who you are. God, I do thank you for the gospel. I thank you for your word. I thank you for James' encouragement for us today. So Father, I pray that we be humbled by your good work. Lord, we'd be humbled by the message of the cross. And God, I pray that we'd be changed and do battle as you call us to. Lord, we need you. We need you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.